Thank you for inviting me to minister to this morning. It's a privilege to be up here and to pronounce God's word. Shall we pray? Father, I ask this morning that I shall decrease, but you will increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, starting at the beginning of my Christian life, a small boy, about 11 years old, in a church in Richmond, Melbourne, gave his heart to the Lord. Still vivid on my mind is the night that I did it, and I meant it. God meant it, and he accepted me to be his child. He's done wonderful things in my life, things that I'd never imagined 77 years ago. Uh, I've seen, I've done, I've been to places that were just completely out of my range of thought. I've heard his voice. I say that honestly. I'll, I'll jump to that for a start. One morning I was speaking in Tasmania and I definitely heard someone here just say, get rid of your notes. Get rid of your notes. Get rid of your notes. And I stopped hesitated and I said ladies and gentlemen I said there's something going on that I'm not quite sure about and I've just been told to get rid of my notes so I will and I came round the pulpit and I said God wants to speak to someone here tonight this morning it was and uh, I didn't know it was holiday time we had a lot of the holiday people down there I lived right on the beach near Port Arthur and our little church looked out across the beach and uh, I said God wants to speak to someone here this morning we, I don't know who you are there's a lot of visitors here I don't know they used to come down from Hobart to their holiday houses I said after we finished service I'll come down to the front row, you come down, someone will come down and I'll know who, where we go from here. And after I dismissed the church and they all went out quietly, an old couple came down to the front row. It turned out that they had come down to Eagle Hawk Neck to put their house on the market. He was seriously ill with cancer and he was just rounding up his holiday assets and uh, he came down there now he was 30 odd miles or 30, yeah, 30 odd miles past where his holiday house was to come to church out towards the end of the peninsula why did he come that way? he could have gone back to Hobart where he lived I didn't know him Anyway, he told me that he was seriously ill and he used to go to church, but he'd given it away. And he felt that he should 
come back and make things right. So we had a time of prayer and chat and I said, now, you're going home, you live in Hobart, do you ever attend a church? He says, I used to go to the AOG years and years ago up there. I says, well, go and see Rolly. He was a minister, I knew him. I said, I won't tell him anything that you're coming, but go and see him. He promised he would. Another lady who had a holiday house down there came to me some six months later. And she says, for some known reason, I'm going to tell you that Mr. So-and-so was buried the other day. And the names start to ring a bell. So I thanked her for her news and got immediately onto the minister. And I said, just run me past the chap that you buried the other day. And he told me that he'd he'd never attended church again. He rang me up and asked me, could I go round to his house? And he says, I did. I didn't know him. And he said, he came back to the Lord. And I says, was he a Christian when he died? He says, he sure was. And I says, well, I'll tell you something. I said, the last chance he had of ever doing that was in the front row of the little church down at New Bina. And the, the service was stopped by a voice. Get rid of your notes. I didn't know why. God does these things. He does it to encourage you. He does it for the person's sake that he wants to deal with. And God has done quite a few things like that in my years of ministry. But I've been no angel all my life. I've wandered a little bit away through work and I was a shift worker with the SEC for 30 years. I couldn't go to church except if I broke the rules and went to church. And uh, I've had times when I was closer to God than, than others. But I'll get round to that. But one of the things I can remember this morning with joy and happiness was driving down from Jerusalem to Masada. I don't know who's been to Israel here, but there's a few. The road from, goes from Jerusalem, which is about a 1,000 feet above sea level, down to a 1,000 feet below sea level at Masada. And it's David's old refuge. It's a rocky outcrop. There's a, one track that goes up the side of the hill, You don't have to walk that. They've got an electric conveyor now that takes you up. And from the top of that, you look right out across the Dead Sea. And David used to whip through there, over the hills from Jerusalem, running from Saul. And it's all set out like a village up top, and it's still there. And going down the road out of Jerusalem, you go through the wilderness. And it is a wilderness. The highest thing is the stones. There's no grass. 
It's just sand and stones. And the road winds itself down there and they've got a competition got going in the bus. Spot the uh, shepherd. Spot the shepherd, first one. So you look around and there's only a few trees. It's dry as sand and rocks. And someone would yell, there he is, there he is, he's up under that tree up there and he's wearing a... And we'd all around, we'd found the, we'd found the shepherd. He's by himself, he's out in the wilderness, he's got his sheep. No fences. The sheep just wander around and the shepherd keeps touch of them during the day. And one that comes to mind immediately was a shepherd... But the story goes that he was quite a few miles to the east. And he was out mining sheep one day and there was uh, some shepherds came up to have an argument with some girls that he knew for water for their sheep. And he chased them off. And the story is there in Exodus, if you want to read it and keep up with me, that he, that they thanked him that much, they took him home and fed him, and he ended up marrying one of the girls. And his father's name, his father-in-law's name was Jethro. Come now, you with me? Right. And he's out minding Jethro's sheep. And all of a sudden, in his afternoon reverie of looking out on this sand and across the trees and that he's dozing off in the sun and all of a sudden a bush bursts into flame almost beside him and poor old Moses he had a quite a fit he wondered what it was but to top that a voice came out of the bush who knows my name out here Moses Moses I've got something for you to do. And Moses was quite upset to say the least and he started to get the shakes and he wondered what God was going to tell him. So God identified himself and told him, I'm sending you back to Egypt to get my people out. Oh no, said Moses. I'm on the run. He says, I murdered a bloke over there and if they get me, I'm gone. And you're asking me to go back to Egypt. God says, yes, you've got to go back to Egypt to get my people out. So Moses says, well, I can't do it. I can't do it. And God said to him a couple of words. He says, what have you got in your hand? And Moses said, I've got a my staff. One of the versions in the translations in the Bible calls it a stick. I'll call it a stick. I know there's been, I've been into farmers' back doors of their kitchen and beside the back doors a, a willow stick. Around about six feet long. Willow bends when you hit the snake. Don't try a eucalypt, it'll break. But the willow, a good willow, slightly green, will knock the stuffing out of a snake. (laughs) 
And God asks Moses, what's in your hand, Moses? And he said, a stick. He says, throw it on the ground. So Moses throws it on the ground and immediately it's snake and, and Moses takes off. He starts to run away. God says, hey, come back, come back, come back. Go and pick up that stick. And Moses looks at the stick. What's God doing with him? So he walked over and he picked the snake up and it was back to a stick. Do you want more proof, Moses? Well, I won't be able to do it. I won't be able to say anything. God's main question was, what's in your hand, Moses? He had to take his shoes off. He told him he was on sacred ground. He told him exactly what he was going to do with the Egyptians for their punishment on working the children of Israel. What's in your hand, Moses? Just a stick. We can say something to Moses here this morning. Never, never underestimate what God can do with something in your life that seems insignificant. The stick was insignificant. It was there for another purpose. But don't class it as underestimated. I'll tell you another story. One Sunday evening, July 1997, I was at the Church of Christ in Newbina in Tasmania. It was my turn to bring the message from God's Word. At this time, our church was within, within, without a minister. The last one had taken off in a hurry after Port Arthur shooting. He wasn't able to cope with the effect of what he was called on to do. He had young fella and he didn't have a clue. He made a bigger mess than ever. And 15 months later that, in mid-97, the church together with the community was in the doldrums. Now it's hard to explain to you perhaps what it's like living in a small village where everybody knows everybody and there's 35 being murdered round the corner and three of them were my family. My daughter, my two granddaughters were murdered by Martin Bryant and it affected the whole town. People wouldn't talk to each other place went silent they openly I've heard them abuse the media that were down there trying to get a news of a story of what was happening and they just about took them to pieces the ABC came down to a funeral that I was to conduct one day down there and I told them to get their car down the road get it out of sight get it out of sight you mightn't have it when you go to drive it away. They couldn't stand people coming in to see what had happened in their own 
backyard. It was a horrible feeling. I lived it. I was in the middle of it. And they, uh, the 15 months later, and I could never possibly describe the at- atmosphere of that part of Tasmania. That part of Tasmania is one of the nicest parts, right down there on the Tasman Peninsula, and I spent quite some years living there. My house was to that bit of grass out there off the sea. I had my own boat ramp. I had the bush at the back and I had wild animals that used to come in to be fed at night. Not a bad place. I could go fishing any time I wanted to push the boat out. But this coming, this murder that happened down there was pretty savage. I was stopped at a roadblock trying to find my grandchildren and I didn't see them that night but I went and saw them the next morning. I went down to with the police and the doctor and I held my granddaughter's hands and brushed their faces and my daughter I did the same to. Had God left me? No. But I did scream at him. I told him, God, what are you doing to me? What are you doing to me? And strangely enough, and this may sound funny, I frightened a big flock of wild white cockies from a tree above me. (laughs) And it... I looked up and here's these cockies going everywhere. <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, you've overdone it. If, if God didn't, that, perhaps that was blinking out what God would hear. <laughs> There's things that happen in the worst times that God can smooth over and make you smile. And that's one. I still remember the cockies. I don't know how many were in the group, but the tree was alive with white cockies. And they all took off when I was screaming at God. And I meant it. What was he doing with me? And this Sunday night, around about that time, middle, middle of 97... We were going through a bad patch. We weren't out of that patch of what it had done to us. And the little church that I ministered in had no minister. We took our turns, the deacons and one or two other odd persons, (laughs) took the services and we were getting along reasonably well. But there was something missing. And that was the trust of each other. Um, we'd all drawn into our separate little compartments. People were hurting. They kept to themselves in a very strange way. The cheerful fl- friendliness was missing. And it got to be amongst a sort of a, a mould in the church that was starting to show up and sort of kill the church. You could see it. 
This Sunday evening, I thought, no, I'll have to come up with something that can do to encourage a deeper commitment to our church and our way of life. And in the light of this, my message revolved around a boy named Bobby. Bobby I named to make it personal. And I just start to tell a story about Bobby as I knew him. <laughs> it's not as the Bible says, it's as I knew him. And Bobby raced in one day to his mum and said, Hey, mum, I'm Jacob and I are going up the hill to see a bloke who's up there telling stories. We don't understand all of them, but he's good to listen to and we like going up to hear him. So his mum says, you're going up and her son, she says, I'll give you something to take to eat. So she wrapped him up five loaves and two fish and put him in a brown paper bag. This is my story, not the Bible's. He, she wrapped these five, five loaves and two fish up in the bag and gave them to him and said, be sure you eat it. And off the two boys went. Now, being boys, they were in the front row with their bikes. And they were sitting there, and the day got on, and the chap's still talking, and it's getting hotter, and they're getting a bit hungry, but they didn't touch his, Bobby didn't touch his lunch. And along came a fella from, seemed to be one of his offsiders up there, came along looking over the crowd. And uh, he spotted Bobby with his brown paper bag. And he went up to him and he says, Son, what have you got in the brown paper bag? And he says, It's my lunch. My mum told me I had to take some lunch. He says, There's five loaves and two fish. And the offsider, turned out to be a disciple, said to him, The master would like to use your lunch. Now, Bobby was faced immediately with three questions. What was he to do? He could say, I'm not giving it away. Mum will ask me, did I eat my lunch? I can't say I gave it away. That'll be worse. I can give it away. We'll go Harvey's. You can have some, and I can tell Mum I ate my lunch. Or he says, I'll give you the lot. And Bobby passed over his five loaves and two fish. And what went through Bobby's mind, we're not quite sure. Have I done the wrong thing? Have I gone too far by giving my dinner away? Anyway, Bobby's eyes start to come out of his head because they wheeled in 12 wheelie bins and they collected all the bits of food that were left over and thrown away. You read it? It's there. I haven't got the chapter here for you, but it's a good story. <laughs> Dressed up a little bit. But they took up all these wheelie bins of food. And the talking stopped 
and Bobby and Jacob got on their bikes and Bobby races in the back door and says, Mum, I says, I've have I've got something to tell you, but you're not going to believe it. The questions that was asked of Bobby and his response hit me like a rock. He was he could and he would have been quite right in saying, You can't have it. He'd be quite right in saying, I'll go your halves. And he was quite right in saying, I'll give you the lot. But by giving the lot, 5,000 men plus women and children ate all they could and there was 12 wheelie bins full when they'd finished. Mathematics don't come into it, do they? And it was what you've got in your bag, Bobby. At the, when I was telling the story, there was a, an old chap, he's dead now, an old fisherman sitting down this corner of the, in front of me in the second or third row. And all of us suddenly lets out a, a massive guffaw guffaw. The penny had dropped who I was talking about. <laughs> and that's true. The truth had just struck him. Ah, the boy and his five loaves and two fish. Anyway. (laughs) Don't disturb. I'll have you ejected. But the question that was asked, can the master have what you've got in your bag? Well, I'll leave the story there for a minute. I'll just go back to the state I was in. Before, 15 weeks before my kids got murdered, my wife died. So it wasn't the best time in life. She was, died of a, died of a lung disease, couldn't, oxygen couldn't cross her lungs into her blood system and she was living on 11 bottles of oxygen a week that's just to live and she couldn't do a thing she was in a nursing home and that was 15 weeks before the shooting but in that time in that time there was a notice in the local Hobart news that there'd be a lecture up at, uh, actually it was one of the churches, on death. And I looked at it and I thought, well, I'm on my own. It was a Saturday afternoon. I'll go up there and I might find out some tricks how to treat my wife's death. When I got there, it's more than littered with nurses and doctors and specialists and I'd walked in on a medical lecture and on the meantime they came up and told me the title had been changed what they had in the paper from death to tragic death so it was to be a lecture on the effect of tragic death and this was on the 
week before the shooting. So I sat there and took notes down, went home, deciphered my own scribble, wrote it down into a logical thing, put it in a folder and put it in my cupboard. I'll look at it later. After the shooting, I didn't go home for a night or two. I was dealing with my son-in-law, dealing with the media, dealing with a few others. And I drove into my front drive and it suddenly hit me. In the cupboard is exactly what I want. And I was given it eight days before it was needed. Now that's no coincidence. God does not deal in coincidences. He's got a purpose. And these, I stopped arguing with God. I thought I'd been amiss and I asked for God's forgiveness for abusing him. I said, you're a bit early, eight days. It was already there. So I got those notes out and I threw them on my bed and I threw myself on top and stopped there for the best part of an hour and something, thanking God for what he does. He saw what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen and he'd already sent something for me to grab onto. The lecture was given by one of Hobart's top counsellors who I went to see later and thanked her for a lecture and I told her I told her that little bit of the story. What you told me was what God told you to give me, that I'd be there. God looks after us. He does. I'm 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 jumping back here to Proverbs three six. Do you know what it is? Come on. Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. True? We ask God to do things. Do we acknowledge his way? Sometimes we don't. And we suffer for it. If we acknowledge God in all our ways, there's another translation that says it levels our paths. It's same thing. God looks after us. He's faithful in what he says he does, he can do. About three weeks after I spoke on the Sunday night about Bobby and his brown paper bag it was my the elder of the two girls eighth birthday and I was going over to Port Arthur to lay some flowers from my garden at the foot of the cross over there you've possibly seen the cross in in, in the telly if you remember now you've seen a fair bit of me on the telly but I was going over there to lay some flowers at the bottom of the cross on 
and the uh, the water there. And on the way over, I had to call in at the manse, which was beside the church. We had an old couple from Western Australia staying in there on holidays. And uh, they asked me where I was going. I said, I'm going over to Port Arthur to put some flowers at the bottom of the cross. And Stan says, can I come with you? And his wife, Muriel, says, yeah, get him out of here. (laughs) So I had a, a willing accomplice going across. So we went across there, an old Stan, lovely old man. He was a bit older than me. He was an old bloke. And um, he came with me. And we laid the flowers there and I stood there in contemplation. I said, oh, look, Stan, we're going to have a cuppa. And this, this gets me, this sort of business. So he says, right, eh? I says, I'll come with you. So we went up and ordered our c- coffee at the temporary cafe there and sitting outside it and Stan leans across the table and he says, hey, Bobby, what do you got in your bag? And that's what I did. Froze. I froze completely. Bobby, what do you got in your bag? What's that in your hand, Moses? God had challenged me the same way as he challenged Moses to give him everything that I could, that I had in my bag. And I knew without shadow of a doubt that what Stan was saying, God had told him to tell me. When he slowly leaned across, Bobby, what do you got in your bag? I realised that it weren't Stan's words. They were coming from <laughs> further back. And I realised that that Sunday night the message that was given wasn't for the church, it was for a bloke by the name of Keith. And I had the opportunity too then to say no, I'll keep going to church but no, it's not going too well, we're all not talking to each other. I could have said, I'll give my hand Or I could have said, yes, God, whatever I've got, you can have. I had a choice. Moses knew the strength of his stick before he started to use it. One of his ordinary tools of trade for sheep mining. And he had no idea of what it was worth. And I didn't, I didn't really then know how much of my years of being in churches, speaking in numerous areas, God could use. And he drops me right in the middle 
of the worst massacre in Australia. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there. Was I, what was I going to do? So I said to Stan, I said, I think you've just challenged me, Stan. He says, yes, I said, I have. What I didn't know, <laughs> and that's, when, when, when you let God have a go at your life, it's dangerous. <laughs> it is dangerous what he might ask you to do. What I didn't know was that the next night there was a board meeting of the church on the Monday night. And he said, uh, I, he said, he asked for, could he say something? And he told them that God had just done a Joseph on them. Now, do you remember Joseph went to Egypt before he was needed? He was living in Egypt and he was brought up in Egypt before they got the famine. He already had him there to, to, to lead and, and these people. And I suddenly realised that I was, I'd gone to live there. I'd lost my family. I was completely clear of all ties. God's asking me to take over, if possible, with the church. What are you going to do with it? Ah, boy, what did I have in my hand? What did I have in my bag? And my decision to say yes to God was to be for 100% service. So that he went to the meeting, this board meeting, and he says, you can stop looking for a minister, he's already here. And they didn't know what he was talking about until he explained a little bit that he'd challenged me that afternoon in doing God's work that I was to be the minister. And I said, good, we'll stop looking. So I went before the board in Melbourne and the decision came back, yeah, make Keith a minister. <laughs> I didn't know what I'd asked for. But in all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And it goes in for help running a church too. He'll direct which path you go to. God did bless my six years as a minister over there. I knew I wouldn't be there forever. And I asked God to, when you finish with me here at Port Arthur, please tell me, let me know. I went for a holiday to Queensland. Six years later, I went, I've got two daughters-in-law in Queensland and out in the veranda of one of them, she turned around to me and she says, Hey, Dad, how long do you think you'll be living in Tassie? Don't know. Now, next subject. I was having a cup of tea with the, the other one. And she said, 
Hey, Dad, how long do you think you'll be living in Tasmania? I says, you two women up here have been working out my future. I know I'm single. You can work it out. Yeah, but just leave me in it. Don't knock me out. So I came back and went to my daughter's place in Melbourne on the way home to Tassie. And she turned around and she said, Dad, how long do you think you'll be living in Tassie? And I said, I don't know. But I said, I think, I think things are starting to move. Three of them, exactly the same words. So when I went back to Tassie, I, I said... I'll tell you, I think God's speaking to me that my days in Tassie are just on their way out. And I'm not worried. I've done my... I helped six years of getting the church and we, we, we prospered as it went on. But I was also... I was mixed up in the radio, I was mixed up in the nursing home, I was mixed up in... Oh, everything under the sun. We had a radio session. It's the longest going one in Tasmania. Church, out of the church. One thing or another. And I said, um, I said, I think. Now we'd ask Melbourne to help us, and they couldn't find anyone. No one wanted to go to Newbina. Oh no, no. It's got its, uh, you know colours so there was a real decision so I took two two deacons into my confidence and I said do you blokes know what Gideon did one time he said yeah put a fleece out I said I'm going to put a fleece out this is not my church it's God's church let him look after it. The fleece is that you'll have someone here the day after I move out and then we're setting that down as, as September the 30th to be a starter. And they laughed at me. And I said, no. I said, I feel that God's moving me. So I'm quite happy. I've done my stint here and we've done well. God's done well for us. But I says, now I want it to be nicely trimmed off. Anyway, the 28th of September rolled on. (laughs) We'd had a couple from various places have a look at the church, all backed off as fast as they could. Nobody wanted to go there. The shadow was still hanging over the town, over the part of Tassie. And uh, the deacon rang me up and he says, Keith, it's the 28th and we haven't heard a thing back. I said, yeah, of course it's the How many days are there in September? So I felt that sure doing it. Anyway, on the 30th, that night, the phone rings. And all I can hear is, your fleece is in, your fleece is in, your fleece is in. 
I said, now just slow down and tell me, what's this business of fleece? He said, this afternoon I had a, a visit from a certain minister and um, he says, I was itching him to, he showed a lot of interest, I was itching to tell him or ask him when could he start. And um, so I did. When could you start? And his words were, I'll start the week after Keith goes. And he knew then the fleece was in. I said, now, you can tell the church that. We'd only kept it between about three or four of us. To see God's hand move like that at times can be a bit frightening. Sometimes it's rewarding. God does it and quite often it can be a joke. You You get a smile out of it. But God does these things when we... What's the verse say? In all our ways acknowledge him first. Oh, there's... I could go for a long time, yeah, but I'd better finish. The thing is, I've been through a fairly rough time in life. Fairly rough. I can say with a certainty and truthfulness that God does what he promises. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And in the, la- the lowest ways you can get when you've lost your family, when you're right away from your, what's left of your family in one state and you're living in somewhere else, God is faithful. I will never leave you. It's probably one of the one things or few things in the Bible you can, you can grab onto. Just the last thing to finish off. Most of us here would be looking at the wrong side of 40. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Do you know how old Moses was when God called him? 80. <laughs> That's true. And I, when I realised that, I thought, well, boy, I'm 80 today. I'm, start, I'm just starting my service with being a minister. I'm right with Moses. <laughs> Old people, don't say what you can do now in your old age. Is uh, Don't underestimate it. You don't, know, you don't know what you can do. Something in your life that can bring blessing to others, whether you're under 80 or over 80. God doesn't accept age as an excuse. (laughs) So, what's in your hand this morning? And I challenge you, each one. What can you do? Can you stop and beside someone that's mourning and lots of people can't and comfort them? 
One more to go. When I was a minister, um, I thought, oh boy, I've, I've got to do funerals. God's got a sense of humour, you know, left-handed. The first person I did a funeral for had the same name as my wife. They knew each other. And here I'm burying her. That was the first first funeral. I've done 33, I think it is. But there's, a, there's something that each of us, with a bit of age, can take and help to sit down with someone. When you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Just give them a hug. You might get into trouble for it, which I nearly did one time. But that's all that's needed. Actions speak more than words. Just wrap someone up. The one I wrapped up in my arms was the doctor. His son had committed suicide that morning. And I got a call about 7 o'clock and I knew whose voice it was and I says, put the phone down, I'm coming up to see you. They lived right up in the hills. I walked in and she was waiting for me and I just hugged her and 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 hugged her. her. I suppose for the best part of half an hour. Never said a word. And she still remembers that. Whatever you can do. I, I see I made a little note here. Just to cook something. Oh, one more story. <laughs> oh, yeah. One, one more story and we'll go. Uh, this, is, this is the funny one. I've heard that before, Chris. Eh? I've heard that before. <laughs> Have you? Not this one, yeah. <laughs> uh, when uh, when I was home on my own after the girls got killed because they used to supply my daughter used to supply me with food at times and um, they, anyway the people from the church and the town um, used to bring casseroles and things around and you know the worst thing about getting a lot of casseroles I had to throw all my good bait <laughs> out to sea it was going off and I had I had squid and everything in the bottom of the fridge because I, I fisherman I had a boat and the worst thing about it was, was thanks very much <laughs> I've got to get rid of this squid now <laughs> there's always God gives you these, I won't say they're brainwaves, they're not brainwaves. <laughs> he doesn't let you down by keeping you in misery. God has ways and means of getting a smile back on your face at the worst of time. If you commit your way to him. Thanks for listening to me this morning. There's a few more
stories yet about I had a, a runaway bikey living under my house. <laughs> Just before midnight, the phone rings and there's a voice, muffled voice. Um, can I meet you? He says, yeah, it's a bit late at night. Where are you? He says, I've got a little black mini miner and it's parked between the church and the man's. I thought, boy, there's not much room there. <laughs> I knew where that was. I said, I said, you stay there. And I said, I'll come round. The first thing you do is on the knees. God protect me. I don't know what this bloke is. I don't know where I'm going, what for. You look after me. This is your work. So I got in the car and went round. I couldn't even see his car. It was black and was parked in there. That fellow was bawling his eyes out. He'd been threatened to be killed by a gang in Launceston, bikey gang. They'd given him an hour's start. He'd run down the bottom of the peninsula and there was no way out because there's a circular road round and one out. And he'd seen my name on a local church notice board with a phone number. And here's me, early morning, sitting there talking to this bloke. I said, well, I think you'd better come home with me. He says, let me tell you first. He said, if, if they catch me, you're dead. And I said, yes, and while you're with me, you're alive. Because my God is looking after me. That brightened him up. That brightened him up. He says, is it true? I was feeding him. I said, yeah, you stick with me and you'll live. So anyway, long short, we got had to get rid of his car, which was another funny story, but we got rid of it and he went to a... A sheltered house it was run by Christians who I knew way up in the hills behind Hobart he went to their Bible studies he took part in he was there for quite some couple of months and he disappeared and I must admit I looked at the death notices for the best part of 12 months and never saw his name God gives you some wonderful jobs to do if you're a minister but if you know you're doing God's work and you've got the covering of the blood and you've got God on your side, wonderful what you can do. Thanks for listening to me.